Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're going to be in Genesis 34 this morning. It was suggested to me uh, last night by a good friend that we should skip this chapter because it's really not a very uplifting scene in the Bible. But it's here and we will deal with it. This chapter is a sad scene reflecting poorly on mankind. Uh, It should be no surprise to us that the truth often reflects poorly on mankind. There ain't too much good in us. It should serve as a reminder to us as we read through this of how desperately we need the Spirit of the Holy God to will and equip us to do what is right. We cannot even want to do what is right apart from His empowerment. Sin lurks at the door seeking to master us. We have to be on guard. That's what this chapter ought to be for us, a reminder to be on guard. So, I've entitled this lesson, Depravity and Deception. Eh, Not too good, eh? Let's look at depravity on display in the first four verses. Chapter 34 of Genesis. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Now, a little bit of background. We've seen several places in Genesis how even pagan kings have a high regard for marriage. Kings were repulsed by the idea of taking another man's wife. In the pagan world, then and now, today in the pagan world, it's the other man who's regarded. It's not the idea of marriage that's regarded. The basis for that high regard of marriage is based on reverence for the man. Because in pagan cultures, ancient and modern, Men are the only people that matter. Women, I'm sorry. If you lived in a Muslim country, you got to walk behind your husband. You cannot drive. You cannot speak unless spoken to. That's the way it is. Because it's all about men. Hamar was the prince of the area. His eldest son, Shechem, privileged child. Privileged child. Get me that woman. This is the underlying worldview that accepts the taking of a woman without her cooperation or willingness as a wife. The Holy Spirit shows God's people how every man and woman and child is made in the image of God. And we are to honor every man, woman, and child because of whose image they are created in. Well, we we don't condescendingly look at anybody. Well, they're not part of us. They're not like us. Made in the image of God. We are to honor and respect all people. Not just those that we identify with. Some commentaries put blame on young Dinah for going out alone. It's clear from our text that she went in search of women. Likely in search of conversation with other young women. She was... (laughs) 
one teenage girl surrounded by 11 brothers. You think she didn't need the conversation of another woman her age. That's what I think what was going on. Shechem spoke kindly to her. All throughout this chapter, it appears that he is genuinely attached to her. He likes her. Yet he saw, in, he, he saw her as property to be acquired. You can like something. Men like cars. That's a safe topic to talk. Well, it's not too safe, but men like cars. They want a car, they go buy it. You know? It's not too dissimilar from the attitude of men towards women in this day. And what we see in this opening package is, passage is natural man. He wants what he wants, and he takes it because he's depraved, he's unrestrained, and he's unable to comprehend the beauty of another human being, and he's unable to comprehend the horror of treating a fellow human being as a mere object to satisfy his brute desires. See, this is what's the underlying what's happening in this scene. Shechem can say nice things to Dinah. He can treat her nice. He can, he can be a nice man to her. But his underlying attitude is one of entitlement without regard for anybody else. Culture of men for men. Reflecting the natural condition of man. I want... It's like any two-year-old. You, you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be selfish, do you? He just wants what he wants. He doesn't have any idea of empathy yet. He will, Lord willing. So, the opening chapter sets the scene for depravity on display. We'll see more about who these people are in a minute. Ah. Verses 5 through 12 reveals the failure of fathers. I turned too many pages here. 5 through 12. And Jacob heard that he had defiled, defiled Dinah with his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. Yeah. Two fathers fail their children in this passage. Jacob heard of the crime, but he said nothing. I'm going to wait till the boys get back. Why? Don't know. He's the patriarch of that clan. He says nothing. Hamar comes to speak to Jacob, but Moses doesn't record that they said anything to each other. 
waited until the sons showed up, and then Hamar spoke to the sons. Hamar is seeking to assimilate them. Note what he said. Uh, Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters. You will dwell with us. The land shall become yours. Lie before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourself. He wants to add Jacob's clan to his. Now, the undercurrent of all of this is, hearken back to Genesis 3, the proto-evangel as it's called, the seed of the woman will be persecuted by the seed of the snake. And Israel is being formed up. The nation doesn't exist yet. The man has been named to foretell of the nation is being formed up to guard the seed and to display the glory of God in the world. Hamar may not realize it, but he's being used by Satan to try to assimilate those people into his clan so that they will lose their identity and be lost in the sea of humanity. It's not a light thing that he says, come and be part of us. Now, Hamar justifies Shechem's crime by pointing to his son's unrestrained passion. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Give him to her as a wife. He offers not one word of disapproval to his son Shechem. Not one word of disapproval. But he implicitly approves of what he has done. Both of these fathers failed their children. Jacob didn't take up his daughter's cause. Hamar did nothing to correct or restrain his son. And by his silence, Jacob gave his sons the opening to take action. And by defending Shechem, Hamar condoned his sinful actions. And he actually reveals hatred for his son. Solomon wrote, He who spares his rod hates his son. And Hamar was a prince. Shechem is his firstborn. Shechem is a child who probably grew up never hearing the word no. You don't teach a child right and wrong at an early age, and they grew up thinking there is no right and wrong. Natural man can't comprehend moral truth. Hamar pleads with Jacob to accept the arrangement and settle him with them and be one people so his son can have the woman he raped as his wife. That's That's the attitude. Hamar missed opportunities to discipline Shechem when he was young, and now he's grown and he's unable to be restrained. Again, if Solomon had been one of Hamar's compatriots, he might have benefited from hearing Solomon say, correct your son and he will give you rest. That's 29.17 out of Proverbs. Hamar didn't get any rest due to neglected obligations in Shechem's early years. Hamar is busy policing up after his son. Shechem is emboldened by his father's support and reiterates his demand that Dinah be given as his wife. He appears to be genuine. He wants to pay a dowry price, wants to pay whatever great price is named. Yet he seems particularly unaffected by the crime he's committed. Lack of shame or remorse speaks of a darkened heart. One that is focused on self. 
One cultural sage of our day said, if you always defend your children's mistake, one day you will hire a lawyer to defend their crime. Wisdom tells us the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29:15. Shechem had lived his life as a privileged son. He had a town named after him. Remember last week, Shechem, uh, Jacob camped near the town of Shechem, named after Hamar's son. He's, Hamar would have no opportunity to hire a lawyer. That, that cultural sage says you don't discipline your children, you have to hire a lawyer to defend them. Hamar wouldn't have that opportunity. We see what unfolds in the next few verses. Genesis 14, 34, 13 through 17, like father, like son. Let's see what happens here. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamar his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Moses writes that the sons of Jacob answered Shechem deceitfully. They didn't mean what they were saying to him right then. They had no intention of becoming one people with them. They tell Shechem and Hamar, if you become like we are, every male among you is circumcised, we will take your women. If you don't, we will come and take our sister by force, if need be, is the implication, and be gone. All of this is deception on the part of Jacob's sons to gain the trust of those that they want to destroy. Men without government tend to be their own legal authority, judge and jury. Jacob's sons don't look to their father for guidance, nor does Jacob offer any. These men do not demand Shechem be turned over them for punishment. They follow the ways of their father. Deception. Jacob lived his life earning this label as a deceiver. God is changing his nature slowly as the days unfold, but that's his legacy. He's taught his children, his sons. They learned his methods. And they, they answered these people deceivingly. They seek to convince all the men to submit to circumcision with the promise that they would all freely intermarry. See, it's not as though the people of God in this time had been left without instruction. Back in Genesis 28, the first couple of verses... It said of Abraham, let's 
Let's see. Oh, this is what Isaac called Jacob. This is a different episode than what I'm thinking of. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, Don't take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Go to Padamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your father's mother, and take yourself a wife there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. See, this this teaching is don't intermarry with the pagans. And Jacob's sons, the product of those instructions, Jacob had two wives from that clan of his mother's people. All his offspring come from those two women and their two house slaves. His sons don't comprehend this instruction and they promise they will intermarry. But it was all deception. And worst of all, maybe, maybe worst of all, they, they used the sign of the covenant that was given them. Genesis 17, you and all your males, eight days old, will be circumcised in their flesh. This is a sign of the covenant. I will make you a father of many nations. I will give you land. This sign of the covenant. This was used by Jacob's son as a tool to deceive these men. Lead them to their deaths. The covenant sign is a sacred thing to those people in that covenant. It's a holy thing. It's what separates them from those outside. And Jacob's sons profaned their very existence by using that sign as a means to trap those upon whom they wanted vengeance. Now, Canaan was the promised land. But it was full of people that needed to be conquered. Not joined with. When God's people entered the promised land, God said, I'm giving you this land. What did they have to do? go up against the Amorites and the Hittites and every other kind of ite that had sprung up from Ishmael's line that occupied the Promised Land. Have to conquer it. What were they warned against? Don't take their daughters in marriage. Don't give your daughters to them in marriage. Don't become one with them. We who are in Christ cannot be joined with those who oppose Him. They must be conquered by grace before we can be one with them. That's why membership in the local assembly of saints is for those who are saints. We have to guard that. Let's move on. Chapter 34, verses 18 through 24. Deceived by deceivers. Starting in verse 18, their words pleased Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamar and Shechem and his son came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell on the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. 
And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamar and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Hamar and his son and the rest of his, the men in his clan, they did not try to dodge what Shechem had done. They did not try to distract or deceive Jacob or his sons. Immoral people are often not put off by their own immorality, but they want to be seen as righteous by others. These guys appeared to be dealing straightforwardly with Jacob and his children. Told them what they wanted. Heard those terms back. Accepted them with joy. Hey, we're going to get... <laughs> we will... Well, let's see. We will get all of their stuff. The land is large enough. And we will take their daughters and give us their daughters. And all that is theirs will be ours. This was received with joy by Hamar's people. Sounds like a good deal. They appear to be expect, expecting straight talk from Jacob's son. They'd been talking straight with him. They expect straight talk in return, but they did not get it. The man who had lived much of his life as a deceiver had offspring who had learned from him. And these men were determined to use whatever means necessary to get vengeance on these men that had violated their sister. We need to bear in mind that if our lives are marked and dominated by such behavior, we need to examine ourselves. Psalm 101.7 says, He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. May God help us. It, it comes easy to tell a white lie. It comes easy to lead somebody to believe something for ulterior motives. And we must ask God to help us and guard us in these things. Hamar and Shechem convinced the rest of Hamar's men that the words of Jacob's son were good for them and their whole clan. Everything that was of value would be shared amongst them. And all that was Jacob's would be theirs. And all of this sounded good to Shechem, who's identified as the most important man in his father's clan. All of their words pleased Hamar and Shechem. All of this sounded good to them. Shechem, a privileged man, was delighted at the thought of having Dinah as his wife. So he and his father, they rehearse everything that was told to them by Jacob's sons. They rehearse it to their men. Emphasizing the certainty of much gain. We're going to get all this stuff. Sounds good to us. Does it not sound good to you? And the men received this with joy. And all the men were circumcised in their flesh. Blinded to the danger of these vengeful men by their desire to gain wealth. Hamar's clan wanted to increase. 
Not a bad thing. Get a promise. Blinded by their desire for this increase to not even think about what may be going on with these people that are eagerly coming to them with this promise. So we go to this next portion here where man's vengeance vengeance shows up. 25 through 29. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, and what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. In this passage, Two of Jacob's sons are identified. Up to this point, they've just been called Jacob's sons. Here we see the ringleaders, Simeon and Levi, names that we know well. They lead the charge. All eleven sons take action. Contrary to the promises of profit and wealth made by the brothers, what they experienced was the vengeance of man. Rather than Jacob's livestock and possessions becoming Hamar's, the opposite took place. Shechem and Hamar murdered, every male murdered, the city plundered, all their livestock possessions, children and wives taken back to Jacob's place. As I said earlier, men without government tend to be their own legal authority. Ron Crisp said, Simeon and Levi used God's covenant sign as an accessory to murder. They used it to deceive them and they used it as an accessory to murder, Brother Ron said. Incapacitated men, slaughtered while they were weak, under the pretense of bringing everybody together in one large clan. It's instructive to recall what was said of Abraham to Isaac, Jacob's father. This is what I was had in my mind earlier. It's in Genesis 26. We must remember something that this alludes to. 26 verses 4 and 5. I will dwell with you. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is the point. We don't know from Scripture what these laws were that he had given Abraham, but we know that he was instructed by God on how he would live. God uses these terms, mandates, commands, statutes, and instructions, Now, we know from other Scripture much of what types of governance God has given man. Because there's there's a high degree of consistency in all of the 
commandments and mandates and laws and instruction that God gives people. And one of those cons- uh, constant things is that man shall not take vengeance of himself on another man. <clears throat> Punishment for crime is reserved to the state whether it's national Israel or any other state. Romans 13, the sword is given to the state. It's not given to you or to me. Solomon, he wrote, My son, keep your father's command. Abraham was given all these commands and mandates and laws and statutes. Keep your father's commands. They apparently didn't remember or even care what Abraham had been told. My son, keep your father's commands. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. That's in Proverbs 6, 20 and 20 through 22. See, if we had nothing more than the knowledge that Yahweh gave instructions to our father, if God came down and spoke to your dad and said that he had given your dad instructions and mandates and laws and statutes that you should walk in. You should go to your dad and say, hey, what's all these things God told you? Jacob's sons didn't appear to be the least bit interested in that. We see nothing to indicate that they cared that their father and their grandfather had been instructed by Abraham. These men who would be leaders of the tribes of Israel, they were rebellious against whatever mandates were given to Father Abraham, and they were rebellious against their own dad. They were as bent to gain their vengeance as Shechem was bent to gain Dana as his wife. And rather than Hamar's people gaining everything that was Jacob's, they lost everything that was theirs. The sons of Jacob killed them and took their flocks, their wives, and their children. This was not justice. This was vengeance according to man and his view of self-legal authority. Again, Ron Crisp says their moral indignation was commendable, but their indiscriminate wrath was horrible. You see, this is why God gives government. Because man left to himself... He can be a horribly vindictive soul. And we need restraint. And often God gives us others to act as that restraint. But as was said earlier by one of these people I quoted, if you don't discipline your children when they're young, you will have a more difficult time doing that when they are adults. You can't save your kids, but you can teach them how to live as morally responsible people in this wicked world. That's a safeguard every parent should desire for his children. The last three verses, two verses of our chapter. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number... They will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? To me, that's just a weird way to end the chapter, but there it is. See, it appears that 
Simeon and Levi were the leaders of this scheme of vengeance. And Jacob's primary concern seems to be not that God's commands and statutes were violated, but his personal safety and well-being and the future of his clan is at risk. Simeon and Levi and the other sons of Jacob were only focused on vengeance. And nobody seems to be concerned about what seems right in God's eyes. I will say it's only human for these men to see things this way. I mean, Jacob, he had a promise from God that he would prosper his people. And it's reasonable for Jacob to be concerned, not fearful, but concerned that his clan might be wiped out. He didn't voice any objection when his clan might be wiped out by assimilation into Hamar's people. But to be killed, that was another thing. There's no doubt that the crime against Dinah was horrific and consequences were needed. But taking vengeance into our own hands does not work this out, does not work this out as God intends. See, Jacob does not rebuke his sons in our passage, but he, he, he lets them have the last word. The last sentence is a question from the, from these two. But later, on his deathbed, when he's giving the blessing to his children, Here's what he says about these two. He says in Genesis 49.5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Hey, Jacob hadn't forgot what they had done. And he gives all kind of blessings to these twelve other or ten other sons. He doesn't have much nice to say at all about these two. And it appears this incident has weighed on his mind for a long time and shows up at the end of his days. We must keep this one thing in mind. Consequences for sin may seem like they pass us by and we got by with that one. But it's not the case. We must remember that all things are open. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of God, Scripture tells us. All things are open to Him. How foolish we are to act in a given situation as if He doesn't see that. But we shouldn't do that. We must be sensitive to the Spirit's conviction of sin us and be ruthless with ourselves and kind towards one another. I may disagree with you. I may think you're in horrible sin. I don't know what you're going through. And my concern ought not to be with a brother's sin as much as it is with my brother's struggle, compassion and love for one another, not judgment towards one another. Simeon and Levi say Dana was treated as a harlot, a prostitute. Perhaps perhaps referring to a cult prostitute. Don't know. Doesn't say. But Dinah was a woman taken by force. Not everyone who serves in that other realm is taken by force. Some are, some aren't. The two aren't the same. I don't know why they said, should we let, should he treat our sister like a harlot? I don't know why they chose that term. But what did occur to me is that if people have to redefine a sin, 
in order to condemn it, they don't understand the nature of sin. It's as if we've got to redefine the crime to justify our response. See, sin is horrific and it's horrible, not because of the temporal consequences. That temporal consequences can be bad, horrible in this case. Sin is horrific and sin is horrible because it is rebellion against God himself. The the act of sinning against God. See, it's not just sin, but sinning against God needs to be something we bear in mind because you can't really comprehend how horrible lying is if you don't recall who judges your speech. It is God, not man. Those who are known by God, rather, we are doubly guilty. How shall we, who have died to sin, live any longer in it? Paul would later write. Knowledge revelation from God. He reveals things through general revelation. He reveals things through His Word. Two ways, general and special revelation. People who have revelation from God are responsible to God for that. That's why there is no man that is without excuse. Every man has knowledge of God to one degree or another. Jacob and his sons are held to a higher standard than Hamar and his clan. Their attempts to justify their actions more deplorable than Shechem and Hamar's because these are God's people. These men should have known better. To one degree or another, everyone's in this, everyone in this chapter missed the point. The fathers missed their call. The sons were petulant and rebellious from the get-go. Fathers, train up your children in the ways of the Lord your God. Restrain them when they're young and rebuke error. Do not humor them when they pursue the lust of the flesh. Brother, beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 19. He will, he's the one who's going to make all things just on that great and terrible day when He comes back to judge all the nations and make all things new. We shouldn't try to take matters into our own hands because the state doesn't do what we want or because God hasn't done what we want. Because there is one judge and you ain't it and I ain't it. So, We have a more sure word. We have the whole canon of Scripture. We can can read the Proverbs. We can read from Paul. We can read in the Psalms. Jacob and his sons didn't have that benefit. It's easy for us to see where these ancient folks went wrong. But we also got to remember they had enough light to know what they did was not just damaging to them and their offspring in temporal ways. It was an affront to the God who had promised to prosper them in so many ways, including the spiritual. See, they had been promised by God. Makes sense for Hamar and Shechem to rebel against God and His order for the family. It's a sad occasion for those marked out by God to neglect and go against what God has taught. But this, this appears to be an ongoing lesson for us. 
certainly an ongoing lesson for these people in this ancient time. We have to be taught, we have to learn, and we have to relearn to be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. The unholy trinity, as it's called, our flesh, the world, and the demonic realm, always work tirelessly to draw us aside from being content in Christ. They draw us aside to lust after the things of this world as though they were of utmost importance. And since the captain of our salvation has told us not to worry about food and drink, clothing, or our body, Matthew 6.25, why should we allow desires for those things? They're not bad things. But why should we allow desires for those things to take first place in our heart? Being firstly and foremostly concerned about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, blah, 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 leads you away from being heavenly minded and content in that promise that Christ has given us. I want, to, I want us to close by looking at a couple of passages that encourage us in this way. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six, starting in verse six. Now, can, now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Hamar and Shechem and the rest of their clan pierced themselves through with many sorrows because they wanted that wealth. But you, O man of God, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things that are praiseworthy. Colossians 3. No, yeah, Colossians 3. Gentiles eat pork chops. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Proverbs 15.9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. You want to be pleasing in God's sight? Cry out to Him. Give you that desire for righteousness, for godliness, for holiness, that you would walk in a way that reflects who you belong to. Not walk as the world does. Henry Law observed this. And this is in the larger context of 
what even was happening in chapter 34. Reader, take warning. Leave God to work His will in His own way. Take not the rudder from His hand. Anticipate not, but meekly follow. His ways are always right. So His time, always the best. If Henry Law had been a compatriot of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, that would have been good counsel for them. It's good counsel for us. This doesn't, this doesn't convey to us the idea that we're just supposed to let go and let God. No, we are to be diligent in our pursuit of godliness, diligent to study ourselves, to reveal a right spirit within us, work at being loving towards one another. We are never told to be passive in our pursuit of all the things God has instructed us to do. But at the same time, we cannot imagine that we can be successful at any of it if the Spirit of God does not attend to that in our lives. Pursue righteousness and godliness. Meditate on what is praiseworthy. Put to death your members which are on the earth and follow after righteousness. That's what God wants us to do. Let the words of life sink down deep into your soul. And when the enemy prompts us and tempts us to wander, may the Spirit of the living God remind us of this thing, these things. All these things that are praiseworthy, meditate on them. The one who is above, he gives us all good things to, to enjoy. Thanksgiving ought to be the hallmark of how we accept every good gift. Not one as if we're entitled to it, but we recognize that our Father who feeds the sparrows, He will feed us. That's His word of comfort to His children. Don't take vengeance. Leave that to God. Trust Him. That's our call. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for reminding us in this chapter that left to ourselves, even Your people, we can be useless and we can be 